teacher's voices. As voices du professeur. As voix de l'enseignant. La voix des enseignants. Bien, 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 Before COVID, over half of the children in low and middle income countries were in learning poverty, meaning that they were not able to read a simple sentence by age 10. And since COVID and the various school closures, this number actually could rise to 70%. So there is a widening education crisis and learning crisis that's happening. And UNICEF, alongside their many partners and ministries of education, are trying to address this learning crisis. Welcome to a new episode of Teachers' Voices. I am your host, educational researcher Nina Alonso, and today we are continuing the conversations about foundational skills that we started in the previous episode. Today, we are highlighting both the need to build better educational systems and to develop creative and adaptive teaching practices. We will first listen to Renaud Combat, Research Manager at UNICEF, who will tell us how his research tries to detect good school practices that can help to build better educational systems. We will also listen to teachers from different contexts who share stories about their creative practical experiences teaching children how to read and how to learn basic mathematical operations. Andrea, from Montevideo, Uruguay, will tell us about how her children use sensorial and body experiences to learn numerical skills. Manda, a traveling teacher working in various schools in California, will share stories with us about how she supports the development of foundational skills with visually impaired children. We will hear insights from Susie from Wyoming, who explains the different dimensions of foundational skills when teaching visually impaired children. And we will also hear from Francis Bizosa, a teacher trainer from Uganda, who will help me close this episode as he calls teachers to motivate reluctant young people. Let's first welcome Reno Kumba, who is the research manager of Data Master Speak Positive Divine Schools Project in UNICEF. Hi, Nina. Hi, Reno. Welcome to Teacher's Voices. How are you? Very good, thank you. How are you? I am good. So glad to have you here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Renaud, your research is part of the UNICEF Foundational and Literacy and Numeracy Initiative, a global initiative that includes many activities that UNICEF implements on the field in all of its different country offices to address the expanding learning poverty in the entire world. Could you tell us what Data Master Speak is about? The Data Master Speak is a global initiative that will launch in 2014 and that is currently being implemented in 18 countries around the world. It aims at improving accountability at school level by uh, creating data feedback loop from the school to the national level and from the national level to the school level so that parents and head teachers and students actually know how their schools are performing compared to other schools in a community or in a district. The final outcome of Data Must Speak is to improve uh, quality learning. And quality learning means foundational literacy and numeracy. Renaud, you are managing a promising research program that focuses on positive models that educational stakeholders in different contexts could learn about. 
I am sure that our listeners would love to hear about what positive deviance schools are and what data must speak positive deviance research is doing to help address the urgent global learning crisis. The data must speak positive deviance research was launched in 2020. Uh, it is currently being implemented in 13 countries and we are continuing to expand it. It aims at identifying locally rooted and very often untapped solutions created by school level stakeholders such as head teachers, teachers, inspectors, and uh, circuit supervisors and understanding what are the best behaviors and practices that they are implementing so that certain schools, which we call positive divine schools, perform better than others in a given context. And how does this research program detect these positive divine schools? So we have a framework of five different buckets of behaviors and practices that we want to observe. However, this is a framework. And again, it needs to be co-created with the government and with local academics um, throughout you know, the research design phase. The first bucket is on school leadership. So really understanding the behavior and the practices of head teachers and teachers, of teachers with each other. The second bucket is what's happening in the classroom. So we will develop some classroom observation instruments to understand what kind of behaviors and practice are the teachers implementing with their students inside the classroom. The third is a, a bucket on the school environment trying to understand what's happening outside of the classroom during the recess, before school starts, after school starts with the teachers, the head teachers and the students. The fourth bucket is really at the community level. What's happening between uh, the community and, you know, organizations that are being created by the community, such as PTAs, the parent-teacher associations, or the SMCs, the school management committees, and how do they interact with schools? And finally, the last bucket is at the decentralized level. Schools and head teachers report to a decentralized level um, at the district level or at the regional level. And so we're going to try to understand how are those offices, those decentralized education offices and the school inspectors interacting with head teachers. Could you tell us more about the role of teachers and how they are involved in this interesting research? The Data Must Speak research um, is, a, is a participatory action research uh, where depending on the country, depending on the context, and depending on what is possible given the global um, health pandemic, we are trying to engage with teachers beyond just being the subject of this research. We are trying to encourage ministries of education to train teachers in collecting uh, data. Uh, this is the case in Laos, uh, where the, the Ministry of Education and Sport hired pupil teachers, so teachers-to-be teachers that are in training, uh, to uh, go into 120 schools and collect uh, you know, quantitative data and qualitative data to identify positive divine behaviors and practices. So teachers are the subject of this research, but they are also active participants. UNICEF has done a positive divine uh, study uh, in Namibia a couple of years ago, I think in 2015 and 2016. And one of the main finding was really concerning the school leadership and on how when a head teacher 
is very open with um, his or her staff. And when there is an open door policy, we see that teachers are much more able to raise their concerns and share their challenges with each other, with the teaching uh, staff, but also with the head teacher. And so because there is a better understanding and a better communication about those challenges and about the best practices within the school, we see that um, those schools are performing much better. Thank you, Renaud. Before we finish, how would you summarize the relevance and the uniqueness of this research program? For the first time, we are really paying attention to the already created, contextualized, cost-effective local solutions that local stakeholders have created you know, through practice and through understanding where they lived and their context to really address global education challenges. And it takes a whole lot of expertise to contextualize a program. So why not going directly and finding those local solutions and scaling them up in their own context? At the end of the day, those people know better than we do. Having heard about the work of UNICEF trying to detect exemplary school practices, let's now hear about the concrete ways in which individual teachers try to develop good creative practices in their daily work with children. We head south and we land in South America in a small country that sits on the Atlantic coast between Brazil and Argentina, Uruguay. Andrea teaches in a small Waldorf school in the outskirts of Montevideo. As she welcomes me, she describes the beautiful and natural scenery that surrounds the school. Because the school is next to a forest, she and her students see wonderful trees from the classroom windows, which is at the ground level, and has direct access to a green area. Andrea first talked about her teaching context describing the school she works at and the group of children that she teaches. The main characteristic of this school is that it is a learning community and that the place of families is very active here. Families and teachers work together for the management of the school and that makes it a very lively community where we are all involved in the life of the school, including the children, ourselves and the families. I have a group of 18 boys and girls. They are eight years old, and this year they will be nine years old. I am their primary education teacher, and so I joined them last year. According to the Waldorf pedagogy that this school applies, the same teacher accompanies all grades through all primary education, so I will continue with them until their last grade in primary school. It is a very rich class, very, very enthusiastic. When I have to think of an image of the group, the fire element comes to my mind to characterize them. They are sparkling, they are always very enthusiastic. We have also worked hard to be able to channel all this energy, and it is a group that demands enthusiastic, rich proposals from me because that is it. They live in permanent enthusiasm. And well, it is also a challenge as a teacher to be able to support and use that enthusiasm. They are very enjoyable and very awake. Andrea also described what a day with her students look like. 
Bueno, nosotros empezamos todas las mañanas. Well, we start every morning when we meet and so we arrive in silence and we are welcomed by a verse and a candle. From there we go out for a while and we do different games with songs and body movements that prepare the children for the later development of the main class. This is the moment when I can also assess their mood. If they are not very awake that morning, we will do something more dynamic to wake them up. But if they come with too much energy, I can make a proposal that helps them regulate that energy. At that moment in the morning, all is body and movement. This starts, prepares them for the moment of entering the classroom so they can put more attention to what is going to be development, the development of the proposal of the day. So they are prepared with a calmer and more concentrated energy. I asked Andrea to give us an example of how she teaches foundational skills. For example, in Now, the most vivid experience that comes to my mind is a recent experience working with maths. For example, in the second year, we have to learn the multiplication tables. And in the pedagogy of our school, it is very important to guide the learning development with lived experiences. Before reaching the intellectual stage, it is important to have a good bodily experience, to awaken the children's senses, and from there, we develop learning. In the multiplication table, every skill is represented by an animal. In the 10 times table, a kangaroo visits us and we realize that it is the animal who makes the biggest jumps, who can jump 10 spaces and wins all the other animals. Every scale is in the multiplication table, is experienced by the children. Every day, a different animal One day, for instance, we do the two times table and so an animal, the rabbit, invites us to jump every two spaces in a straight line outdoors. Then we enter the class and we draw the trajectory. Then we also weave in a circular board with ten nails separated by spaces in the two times table and we weave every two snails. I will share with you an image because it is beautiful, because different polygons appear. In the three times table, for instance, the threads make a star and they make different shapes depending on the number they are multiplying. So the content is progressively represented. They then arrive to the more intellectual part and when the children live it, and this process is supported by vivid images. And for the children, the multiplication table is not just operations with numbers. For them, it is the way that an animal jumps or something they can experience in a way that makes sense for them. What Andrea shares with us links with the teaching experiences that we heard in previous episodes when talking about the relevance of learning through play. The playful approach that she describes seems to motivate her students to learn and discover things quite naturally. Sí. Yes, everything they learn is through discovery. When the time comes to face the multiplication table, so to speak, they have already experienced it in such a way that they will already know that twice one is two, that twice three is six. Because they played it jumping, they drew it, we counted it, they waved the table with the wool. 
Finally, Andrea shared her reflections on how she assesses her own practice. When I reflect about my own experience, I think, well, if they are happy and they are enjoying it, and if there's a climate of permanent joy, then we are on the right track. If they live their learning journey with that joy, with that enthusiasm, those bright eyes, those laughters, that desire to continue, and when I tell them, now the class is over for today, and they go, no, I think that this happens because we are doing a good job and it is going well. This is like my thermometer. After Andrea's inspiring story of teaching strong basic numeracy skills through play and experiential learning, I'd like to now reflect on different dimensions of foundational skills when teaching children with different needs. We travel from South to North America, where Susie Mahon, an experienced educator, specialized in working with visually impaired students, helps to frame the story that we will hear right afterwards, shared by her fellow countrywoman, Manda Nordis. So foundational skills for children with visual impairments need to be taught in a much different way than sighted peers. I think it's important first to remember that blindness is a spectrum, like a lot of other disabilities, and there's no single way to teach a visually impaired child. But very often, because of the lack of vision or visual processing abilities, there's a lack of incidental learning, which is learning by watching, right? So think about going to the grocery store. You have to look at the layout of the store to know where to go. And once you get there, say to the produce section, you have to be able to see what kind of apple you want and then be able to pick it up and see it and feel it to know if it's bruised or if you want to buy it. So often if the child is in the cart, they're handed the bag of apples and they have no way of knowing where it came from. And this, if this happens for an extended period of time in that child's life and we don't intervene, it becomes a way of learned helplessness. And once a child learns learned helplessness, it's really hard to get the motivation and the power to change that behavior for success later in life. So in my mind, foundational literacy and learning skills start with the development of whole concepts with explicit teaching. Concepts like trees can be really big, birds can fly, there's lots of ways to close a bag. Those are all things that people know by seeing, not by doing. And we have to give the kids the experiences to do. And then from there, we can teach the literacy piece because it will then be more meaningful and motivating. Amanda is one of the many teachers who, like Susie, needs to drive every day between different and sometimes distant schools to support the learning needs of visually impaired children. She welcomes us on a Sunday morning in her home in Modesto, California. Hello, Amanda. Thanks for accepting my invitation. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for having me. Manda, according to your practice, what is unique about teaching literacy and numeracy skills to visually impaired children? So many of these skills that are taught in school are taught visually. And you go back to skills relating to foundational literacy and numeracy. And you think about like the kindergarten and first grade classroom setting. 
sighted children are surrounded by letters and language and they can look around the room as their teachers are teaching them and they can see like, oh, there's a letter and it's grouped with other letters. And these letters have sounds that you can put together. And so, oh, these sounds then create words. And so they are constantly having the opportunity to practice these foundational like literacy skills and going even further not only do sighted children have access to the foundational reading and numeracy skills constantly around them that they can see, but they also have access to social skills through seeing like body language and facial expressions, understanding that they need to raise their hand if they um, want to speak. Um, and they can like access that through seeing a teacher's nonverbal prompt. Manda told me an example of the kind of exercises that she uses to support the first stages of learning how to read. One example of what I do is, is when I very first started teaching, I had a kindergarten student. And in kindergarten, we are learning letters and we're learning the beginning foundations of how to read. I really took on the role there because my, my student was going to learn to read in Braille. And in order for her to engage and kind of keep pace with the classroom, we absolutely turned it into a game. So I, I started um, integrating alphabet cards where she would read tactily. And then we started playing Go Fish where she would have to read the letter on the card and ask me for it. So we were really developing the concept of letters and tactile reading, but through games that then she could take home with her parents and it could be reinforced at home. So she wasn't just getting practice during the school day with me. I asked Manda if the student's level of engagement in class and with her peers improved when she received support. When things are accessible, my student absolutely, like you can tell when she has access to her learning in the appropriate medium and she's able to engage meaningfully, she does. She interacts, she asks questions, she um, participates in the classroom. And you can tell like once... When access is there, she is engaged. Manda shared another interesting example of how she used play and experiential learning to adapt her teaching support to the individual needs of students. I had another student who, um, he was low vision and then ended up losing his vision in eighth grade. So we had to teach Braille kind of immediately. And he did really, really well. Like I taught him all of literary Braille, like in about a year and a half. But where he struggled was with math. And there was a math concept about using positive and negative numbers that while he had it in Braille and he could see that it was like seven minus 12, that the concept was difficult for him to, to grasp. I have to improvise, like whatever is there, I have to kind of think in the moment, like, okay, what, what can I do to create an experience that my student can relate to. So yeah, I grabbed, you know, pencils and gave him seven. And I'm like, okay, now you owe me 12 pencils. So he, he physically had to like count them out. And I'm like, oh, so, you know, he counted. I'm like, how many pencils do you still owe me? And he got it. It was like, oh, I still owe you five. So that just that interaction through doing through having the, the tangible items that he could then move from one place to another, relating it to an experience, then made that concept, like that was all it took. He got it in that moment. And 
and yeah, just the change and, and have once that understanding was there, like there was a complete shift in his energy. He, he was smiling. He was happy about it. Like I didn't have to go back in and support that class. Like he got that concept and you could really see like a sense of pride. Manda shared what her motivation is and why she feels her job is so important. I do feel like I have a, a pretty unique experience because a lot of the, the things that I teach, I find them to be really important and meaningful because I'm not just, it's not that the core content isn't important and meaningful, but like teaching to the expanded core curriculum that is specific to my students' needs. I know that these are things that are going to help benefit them for life. And so when they are showing a sense of pride and are taking initiative in their learning and are pushing themselves past the boundaries that they've kind of like placed or that other people have placed on them, I feel a source of pride. Like it will make me teary eyed because, because I know that they are, are learning and growing and pushing themselves further. I feel like my, um, teaching is important is because my students do not have access to that visual information. They do not have access to that incidental learning just by by seeing something happen. So it requires direct instruction in a bunch of different areas in order for us to build that foundation. So that way they can even access the common core that sighted children are being taught daily. We started this episode highlighting the relevance and urgency of giving all children access to basic literacy and numeracy. I'd like to close this episode with the words of Francis Bizosa, a teacher training who has also been a primary school teacher and has extensive experience in contexts like South Sudan and rural areas of Uganda, where school attendance and school learnings are decreasing dramatically. Francis calls for teacher engagement in improving young people's motivation in learning. You first have to ensure that you help the learners understand how this particular skill is going to be helpful to them in future, in their daily life. One of the ways to get the learners get motivated, pick interest in learning these foundational skills is emphasizing our teaching objectives and connecting what you're teaching to the future. When you're teaching these students, when you're helping them understand that it is important for you to be able to read, it is important for you to write well, you're showing them that in day-to-day -day life, these are things we do daily. We write, we read, we comprehend, we listen. have listened to another episode of Teachers Voices. If you have enjoyed this episode, you can find more about Reno Comba, UNICEF Data Master Speak and Positive Deviance on bolt.expert. There, you will also find information about the interviewed teachers and other relevant information related to this episode. Please don't forget to follow us and engage with us in conversations. Send in your feedback and suggestions by email at podcastteachersvoices at gmail.com. I repeat, podcastteachersvoices at gmail.com or on social media. Let's keep on weaving learning communities while reaching research and practice.
Rashke. Professor Rashke. Teacher's voices.